We're on the record. I'm Ashley Sterner, in for Sheila Katz. Good morning. When folks talk about police reform in Baltimore, the conversations often include the phrase community policing, a model aimed at building relationships with residents, or call for a focus on repeat violent offenders instead of low-level offenses. So how did we get here, and what enforcement approaches came before this? For answers, we turn to journalist Brandon Soderberg, co-author of the 2020 book, I Got a Monster, about Baltimore's disgraced gun trace task force. Over the past few months, he has written a series of articles on police strategy and spending in Baltimore in partnership with the Garrison Project and the Data Driven Reporting Project. Brandon, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So last month, the Real News Network published your detailed look at New York's broken windows strategy of the 80s and 90s and how that gave way to the zero tolerance policy in Baltimore in the early 2000s. Um, Explain broken windows and zero tolerance and and how they all came together. Sure. Um, Yeah. So broken windows was a policy that sort of became uh, professionalized in New York policing in the 80s and early 90s. Um, In some ways, as I say in the piece, you know, it's just kind of putting a name on a pretty basic police tactic, which is um, making certain kinds of people that you don't want in certain areas feel like they shouldn't come to that area, generally by knowing they'll be arrested or stopped and searched, stopped and frisked. Um, this strategy started in the um, you know subways and then kind of moved up under uh, Rudy Giuliani um, in the early 90s when he came to mayor as sort of a, a citywide initiative to arrest people for whatever. <laughs> because basically, at the core of it, the idea is that when you don't stop small crimes in an area, bigger crimes manifest. That, if you see a broken window, yeah. that means worse things are going to happen, so stop that little thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, and somehow the uh, the theory be, is that if you do that, that also by doing that, you'd prevent murders in an area. Um, it's been questioned as whether how sound of a theory is, but it was very, very, very popular after New York adopted it because at the same time as sort of starting to adopt it, their murder rate sort of started to really plummet and there became an association between the two, which some uh, people smarter than me have since sort of challenged and said, I don't think there's quite as much of a connection between the violence reduction and broken windows. And how did it come here? How did it become the uh, zero tolerance approach under the O'Malley administration? Sure. So so the way that happened was that these sort of crime reductions in New York were considered really notable. And then consultants in New York started to say, hey, uh, you want to learn what New York did? And they start to sort of farm out the concept of broken windows to other cities, including New Orleans, for example. Um, in Baltimore, uh, Martin O'Malley, then a council person in the mid-90s, and Lawrence Bell, then city council president, created kind of an initiative to go up to New York and study it. Um, like a lot of these initiatives, I think it was sort of sort of just sort of put it all together because I don't think they were come back and after promoting this idea for years and say, actually, we've changed our mind. It was really a way of importing it into New York by engaging those in New York doing it. Um, and the result of that was that they called it zero tolerance, which sort of had an even more kind of menacing and intense thing, intense feeling to or quality to it. And the idea was that we will not, the city will not tolerate any crimes, whether it's trespassing to up to murder and other horrible crimes. Anything is will be not tolerated and you'll get arrested for it. You'll be stopped. The police are heavily enforcing this, no matter how kind of low level the offense is. And zero tolerance did definitely have an impact on arrests. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I wanted to make sure that we focused on Baltimore and understand this, because, you know, in 2003, 
um, the peak of zero tolerance arrests. There are about 110,000 arrests in the city, and that's in a, a population of about 625,000. That's a staggering number of people arrested, you know, lives interrupted, put in jail, often for very small uh, incidents. And because the arrests exploded so quickly, courts became clogged, so you might sit in jail for two to three weeks or months because of some small charge, because they're just bringing so many people in. And I really, um, State Senator Jill Carter, um, in the piece told me, you know, she sees this as like a human rights violation that was not uh, ever really uh, acknowledged or like reckoned with. And I, I, I agree. And these arrests didn't even necessarily come along with charges. I mean, there were a lot of arrests made in which charges were never even levied. Correct. Yeah. A lot of this was about getting people off the streets for a temporary period of time. So, yeah, I believe in 2003, uh, about 20,000 other people were arrested without charge. So basically their uh, punishment was the inconvenience of being taken to jail and then released without charges. And that was also a preventative measure. And I would say something that's baked into zero tolerance policing. They uh, there's police commissioners, there's police officers in Baltimore at the time that are saying part of this is to sort of build this bank of people that we know are committing crimes and sort of jam them up. And so the extent of the charges, whether they got hit with a charge at all, became secondary to this concept of constantly trying to move people out off of corners and off of the streets. And that was in part why this sort of practice was deemed unconstitutional? Correct. Yes. That basically, well, what happened was the um, ACLU and the NWCP sued over this, basically saying this amount of arrest is unconstitutional. It's questionable. There's a lot of bad arrests in the year. And eventually the city settled with the plaintiffs in this case, which Martin O'Malley, the governor by that point, kind of the architect of zero tolerance, argued that this was not an admission of guilt because they settled rather than sort of fully deem it unconstitutional. But at the core of it, it stopped. After this lawsuit, it begins to really reduce itself in terms of arrest and that policy. So fast forward uh, to today. Um, you write that we are seeing a soft return to zero tolerance. How, how so? So the, the focus right now has been on um, targeting individuals, especially so-called repeat violent offenders, um, and also, there has been a ramp up of rhetoric around like uh, arresting and getting people that are experiencing homeless off the streets, people that are using drugs, primarily manifested through a reintroduced citations program under state's attorney Ivan Bates. And the fundamental argument of that program is uh, while it's much smaller and less, in, but the one thing about zero tolerance is we will never, I don't think the police, it would be very hard to ever reach those high arrest numbers. As a result of that, the arrest numbers are often used now to say, hey, they're low, you shouldn't be upset about this. But the argument that I heard from especially people that advocate for the homeless was any of these arrests shouldn't be happening. You know, if you're standing on a corner or if you're peeing in public, these are things that there are better solutions than police for. And these citations are being framed as primarily a way to um, do the same thing as zero tolerance in the sense of saying, hey, we won't accept any of this. You're going to get jammed up in the system. We won't get you jail time, but you'll have to go to court. You'll have to do community service. All preventative measures that studies show don't particularly work. I mean, if we're arresting 110,000 people in 2003 and that's not reducing crime significantly, I don't think arresting people experiencing homelessness for sleeping outside is going to uh, do it either. That's journalist Brandon Soderberg uh, joining us to talk about his reporting on policing and on crime in Baltimore. Uh, this is On the Record. I'm Ashley Sterner in for Sheila Cast. 
Brandon, we have, um, at least this year, seen some positive trends uh, for crime in the city. Baltimore ended 2023 with 262 homicides. That's the first time the city recorded fewer than 300 since the year 2014. What do we make of this decrease? This decrease is is notable. I mean, it's, I believe it's the most historic drop in violence in the city. Um, that's really important. I don't want to downplay that. But what I also think is very important to say is that what's beginning to happen is that policies that were just enacted last year are being cited as the reason for this decline. And as someone who's been working with data and speaks to data scientists, that's just not uh, a stable assumption to make that after one year of declines, we start to associate this, you know, this police initiative or this police initiative is why that reduced. On top of that, it was very important in the piece to kind of stress this, you know, murders are plummeting across the country. Um, Washington, D.C. up the street is actually having a major murder spike, but uh, New Orleans reduced by something like 20 percent. Baltimore's around 20 percent of murders. Detroit is hitting its historic low, I believe. And so I think that it's more likely that we don't know why murders are reducing and that they're reducing on a national level for reasons that it's going to take a while to figure out. And yet mayors and politicians and police in each of these cities are kind of pointing to their specific strategy and saying this is why violence went down last year. That's bad data. That's bad math. And also at the same time, I would just say that what's more likely that each mayor in each of these cities is doing a different strategy and they're all just working at this moment or there's something bigger going on with homicides and crime in, in the country at large and it's 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 reducing quickly and we'll need to figure that out down the line. Um, that's that's sort of my frustration, I guess, as a person looking at this research, is sort of appending these policies to this murder reduction. Honestly, we just don't know yet. Well, and that's that's the case in so many situations, not just with crime, but whenever something good happens, the person in charge like to say that that is the reason the good thing happens, because they were in charge and their policies did it. But even going back to, to New York and the broken windows, homicides were already trending down before that took in, took place. So we don't really know. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, like New York is a really good example. These homicides were reducing long before they introduced broken windows. We've had also Baltimore City has had homicides at lower and higher kind of almost if you look at every strategy and policy, there's really no way to connect it. You know, some for a long time, homicide clearance rate was something that was suggested was a way to reduce murders. Well, we've had high murders when the clearance rate is very low and when it's very high. Um, we've had high murders when the arrest numbers are very low, when the arrest numbers are very high. And so I'm kind of trying to sort of extract these uh, pieces of police common wisdom and say that the data for Baltimore, at least, doesn't show what police have been telling us is the reason for the crime reduction. And there's always the adage of statistical analysis, causation does not equal correlation or vice versa. Yes, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> All the data scientists, Megan, Vita, and Andy will very much appreciate you saying that on the air. <laughs> Another piece uh, you wrote is titled uh, Baltimore's Crime Numbers Game. And in that, you analyzed three decades of data on homicides and the homicide clearance rate and non-fatal shootings, gun seizures, arrests, and the Baltimore Police Department's budget. What did you find when you looked at gun seizures and shootings? So gun seizures in particular are often cited as a major uh, way to reduce crime, and it kind of makes sense in theory, right? 
get the guns off the street, there's going to be less shootings if there's less guns out there. There's two problems with that. Um, one is that there's just a staggering number of guns in Baltimore. You know, a, a former a former police commander told me he believes there's about thirty to forty thousand gun new guns coming into the city. So it starts to become like drugs, where you're seizing guns and more guns are coming in, just like we sort of have all kind of agreed in general that seizing drugs like this doesn't work. It's kind of the same logic for guns. Um, and so what I saw in the data is that there's no connection between the number of guns seized and violence reduction. Again, in the 90s, when almost every police metric was much higher, including gun seizures, we had regularly had 300 plus murders for the 90s. And we're back to that number when everything is much lower. So with gun seizures, there's no real connection between that and violence reduction. This is something people have said in other cities. And as for shootings, um, the shootings are generally about twice as much as the homicides. And if you look at it on a chart, they follow each other just at a 50% difference, but they almost mimic each other exactly on a chart. And then another thing about that is that the police aren't really able to give strong non-fatal shooting numbers before 2000. And I find that really troubling because this is a major metric that the police like to cite. You know, non-fatal shootings are down this year. Another example is getting the job done. But the police don't have a regularly accessible database of non-fatal shootings before 2000. So I really don't, I, mean, I ask again, like, what are we comparing what to in this case? The Baltimore Police Department's FY 2024 budget is over $590 million. Based on the numbers that you've analyzed, do we see a connection between police budgets and crime reduction? No, we don't. There's none at all. Generally, the police budget just continues to skyrocket. It's increased a great deal since the 90s. Um, and there's no real connection between spending and that those numbers going down. And in particular, another sort of, because this is kind of a thing that happened a few years ago with this uh, big concerns about issues with the defund movement was that in years where the police budget has been reduced, which is often by a small amount, you also don't see violence in any way increase when that budget's uh, when that budget's decreased. So there's really no connection between police spending and uh, violence reduction, at least in Baltimore. Is there any way to untangle all these numbers to try to determine what factors do lead to fewer murders, to fewer shootings? Sure. I mean, I think that the way I like to look at it is, you know, we've had this notable reduction last year. It's really notable. I don't want to downplay that. Um, but I think the first thing is we need to get realistic about what the numbers mean. When you start breaking down by population, these murder reductions seem even less significant. I mean, we've lost something like uh, 50 or 70,000 people over the past decade or yeah, so. As the population a of the city keeps on dropping. Exactly. So then the number of murders, the rate of murders per 100 people is different. So I think we also need to be realistic about that and that sometimes the difference in terms of the murder rate is more important than the hard numbers. I have, I have numbers here saying that the 240 murders a year with our current population is the equivalent of 300 murders in 1990. Yes, thank you. Exactly. So that's sort of in a way where we need to sort of change. What happened was and this is what the first piece I wrote, the crime numbers game was about, was this idea that policy is entirely dominated by the 300 number. But how we determine what that 300 number means should be radically different 32, 33 years later. Um, on top of that, I would say that if you want to use police in the way that we use police to try to re reduce crime, if you flood certain communities with police, if you increase arrests, or you harass more people and you professionalize the harassment as a citations court or broken windows, you can surely slightly put a dent in murders, which the city has ostensibly done. But, but that's all you're going to do. We need to get out of this understanding 
that the way that crime is going to be reduced is by police in uniform or in flak jackets running around arresting people is going to make a significant dent. does not surprise me that if you increase enforcement, increase arrests for warrants, you might have a slight violence reduction. But to do the real serious work that's not just, well, it's better than we've been doing, it's going to take serious investment in communities and supportive communities. And it can't be, and you can't reduce violence in a serious way if you're also enacting a great deal of violence on the most vulnerable people, you know, harassing people for sleeping outside that are homeless, harassing people for using drugs. These are central to the citations policy right now. And that is a form of violence. And that is a thing that massively disenfranchises people. And this is a really fraught trade-off, in my opinion, which is to slightly reduce murders or violence, which may not even be associated with what we did. And then the result, uh, harm a great deal of the most vulnerable people, the people we need to be taking the most care of. Brandon Soderberg, thank you so much for for talking to us today. Thank you. Brandon Soderberg is a journalist and co-author of I Got a Monster about Baltimore's corrupt gun trace task force. At the On the Record page, we have links to his reporting on policing in Baltimore and beyond. I'm Ashley Sterner, in today for Sheila Cast, short break on the record, and when we're back, a stoop story. Stoop story.